morning to Colossians chapter 1. We'll be in one verse of this epistle today. I plan to get from 24 through 29, and yet there's too much richness here in verse 24, and I think the message would be appropriate to all of us this morning. And we'll pick up 25, hopefully through 29 next week. But to introduce our thoughts this morning, I want you to think about ministry. I want you to think about Paul's missionary first missionary journey. I'm not sure how familiar you are with it. In Acts chapter 13 and Acts chapter 14, through prayer and fasting, the, the church in Antioch was seeking the Lord's leading of what it is that they should do. And the Lord placed His hand upon Barnabas and Saul and the Holy Spirit spoke to the leaders of the church and said, Send out for me Barnabas and Saul to the work which I have called them. So as Barnabas and Saul were commended by the church, they set sail across the Mediterranean Sea on a journey to share the gospel of Christ with the people in the world who'd never heard the name of Jesus before. And they eventually landed in Pamphylia and preached the gospel to Pisidian Antioch. Then they went up north there in that region of Pamphylia and came and spoke to the people at Iconium and Lystra and Derbe. And along the way, as he ministered, he had joys and he had difficulties. I mean, think about the Apostle Paul. He saw wonderful things in which the Lord worked in wonderful ways. He saw many people saved from their sins. Hearing the Gospel for the first time. Converted. For the first time hearing the Gospel. He saw people filled with joy and filled with the Holy Spirit. He saw churches established. He appointed elders in every single one of these churches. He saw the Word of the Lord spread in glorious ways. And one can only imagine the great joy that was in his heart as he saw the Word of God implanted into people's souls, saw it stir up and people be excited by the Lord, people be filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. But such ministry wasn't all joy. There was uh, some cost to it as well. I mean, think about when Paul came into Pisidian Antioch to preach the Gospel to the, the Jews there. The Jews were excited at first. They said, Paul, come back to us the next week. And so, Paul says, fine. He came back the next week and literally the whole town was there and the Jews saw the Gentiles there too, became jealous and started contradicting the things of Paul and started to oppose him. And the Jews incited devout women of prominence and leading men of the city to instigate a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and he drove them out. They, they drove them out of the district. So that was like the first... Yes, joy, lots of people converted there, but yet he was driven out of the district. It came with difficulties. Paul traveled to Iconium and the same thing happened. Jews as well as Gentiles believed when he preached in the synagogue and pretty soon there, there was a, a stirring by the Jews who disbelieved. They stirred up the minds of the Gentiles, embittered them against Paul and Barnabas, and eventually Paul and Barnabas had to flee for their own safety to a place called Lystra. And if you think that was bad, things got worse at Lystra. When they came there, they started preaching the Gospel of Christ. And the Jews from Pisidian Antioch heard that they were up in Lystra. And so they traveled from Pisidian Antioch to Lystra and said, these people are wicked men, you need to kick them out. And so, before Paul had a chance to flee, they won the crowds over and they stoned Paul. And they dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. Well, miraculously, Paul arose and got up and then went to the next city, Derby, where he made many disciples. 
It's a picture of Christian ministry. Lots of joy, but yet lots of struggles and difficulties and sorrows as well. And I just say personally as a pastor, I have known its joys. I can tell you from first-hand experience, the words of the Apostle John are true to my experience. I'm not sure if you remember 3 John verse 4. He said this, I have no greater joy than this, than to hear my children, hear of my children walking in the truth. And I tell you, there is nothing in this world that surpasses that joy of hearing of people that I've ministered to, that Yvonne has ministered to, who are faithfully serving the Lord. You know, we had an example of that. We have a friend of ours, Lily Kadur. <laughs> She's right there. You stand, Lily. We met Lily about 13 years ago. She was a, a believer at that time, but just she has been a great joy to our heart. She lives now in uh, Fort Worth, Texas, and has served the Lord even amongst difficulties. And she just has a joy of the Lord on her face and a desire to pursue Him. And that thrills our heart with joy. We've got some other friends who, it's, it's very interesting. I remember presenting them with the gospel. And uh, this man particularly is pretty hostile to me and did not take it at all, didn't want it, kind of rejected it. And now they have grown in the Lord. And now they're faithful and they're living in Iowa and doing well. And we see them often. Sometimes they come back and they, they travel back and see us. And uh, we are... We're thrilled beyond any thrill, any joy that we have in, in life. That is my greatest joy. To see that. That's why I'm in the ministry. To see that joy of people growing in the Lord. But I've known the sorrows of ministry as well. I have, uh, I say also, some of the greatest heartbreak that I've experienced as well it comes through trials and tribulations come with Christian ministry. As high as the highs are, so low are the lows. And that is Christian ministry. And these, ministries, these experiences aren't merely the, the destiny of those involved in full-time ministry. They are the experiences of all who name the name of Christ. When Paul went to Pisidian Antioch in Acts chapter 13, the Gentiles heard the Gospel for the first time. There was spontaneous rejoicing and great joy in realizing that the light which was to the Jews had gone on now to the Gentiles and they can share in Christ. And their joy was overflowing. And the joy of the gospel ought to so stir our hearts that we are filled with joy. Likewise, as the gospel takes root in other people's lives, when you have the opportunity to share what you know with other people, it will bring great joy to your heart as you input into other people's lives and you make an impact upon them spiritually. You all will experience great joy as well. In fact, I would call the church the happiest place on earth. It's happiest because the happiest people are there. Those who have been forgiven of God and know that they can stand right before God. And those where you have a community of, of like-minded saints building up one another and encouraging one another and, and sacrificially denying themselves and serving one another. It is the happiest place in the world is a fruitful church. But such happiness and joy may come as a price as well. In fact, before Paul returned home from his first missionary journey, he visits each of these churches before he left back. And here's what his counsel and advice to them was. I'm sure they experienced joy, but here's what he said. He said, Acts chapter 14, verse 22, He need to continue in the faith because through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Here in New Christians, New Churches, he's saying that your stand for Christ will be difficult. It's going to be hard. And you need to know that it's through many tribulations 
we must enter the kingdom of God. In other words, the Christian life is filled with, with joy and believing and fellowship and yet also with trials and difficulties and tribulations. Now, in our text this morning, we see both of these things come together. The joy of ministry and yet also the sufferings of ministry as well. My message is entitled this morning, Joy and Suffering. And so, it's really applicable to you this morning. If there's some issues in your life that, are, that you're finding difficult. You know, so, I look out among you. I know some difficulties in your life. I know I've counseled with some of you, whether it's financial or, or family issues or conflicts at work or conflicts elsewhere. I know the struggles among you. And so, as I, I preach this message, it comes really from a, a pastor's heart to help you in your suffering. Paul says this in the ministry. He said, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Let me read that again. It's a short text. We need to evaluate. That's where we're going to stay here. Verse 24. Now, I rejoice, Paul says, in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I do my share on behalf of His body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Ponder well those first six words. Now, I rejoice in my sufferings. At first glance, they might appear strange. I mean, those words normally don't go together in a sentence. Now, I rejoice in my sufferings. Rejoice and joy and sufferings normally don't go together. Are there any among you suffering today? If you're suffering, are you rejoicing in your suffering? It's possible, you know. It's not out of the realm of your grasp. We see Paul doing it. In fact, James commands us to do it. He says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Right? When trials come in your life, there ought to be nothing but joy come into your life. I know that uh, for me, my failure when I have suffered and gone through trials and tribulations is that I've often got to the end of them and said, Whoa, those were really good. Those helped me. Or I grew because of those. Or that was good for me. I can rejoice now, but Paul doesn't say rejoice after you're done with your sufferings. What do you say? He says rejoice in them. That's what James says. Consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. So it's right in the midst of your trials that you ought to be expressing joy and you ought to be joyful in those things, right? And that's what Paul says. That's the point of this first word here is now I rejoice. It is right now when I'm in the midst of my sufferings that I am rejoicing. In fact, that verb there, rejoice, is in the Greek in the present tense, which is more of a continual action. He says, now, in the midst of my suffering, I am continually rejoicing. That's what Paul is saying. And you say, how can Paul do that? Well, I believe Paul could do that because he had a proper perspective of life. And when you have a proper perspective of life, the joy, the, the struggles that you go through, the, the trials and difficulties, you can have joy in them. I'm telling you, you can have joy in them. You say, ah, oh, Steve, though, you, you don't understand. You don't understand how deep the wounds are and how severe the pain is. Surely, Steve, nobody has it as bad as I have it. I can't rejoice. Well, let's consider the Apostle Paul. Where was Paul when he wrote this? He was in prison. 
In fact, when he was writing this letter, he was in prison. When he wrote Philippians, he was in prison. When he wrote Ephesians, he was in prison. When he wrote Philemon, he was in prison. That's why they're called the prison epistles. And here he is in prison for preaching the gospel of Christ, saying, I rejoice in my sufferings. Now, while imprisoned, I rejoice in my sufferings. You see, yeah, yeah, but Steve Paul was unique. I mean, he was especially blessed by God. Jesus Himself appeared to him and spoke with him. He's different. He's got a special anointing upon his life. Well, have you considered the plight of the apostles, nearly church, who are boldly proclaiming Christ? They also were imprisoned for their crimes. They stood before the highest religious council today and were rebuked for their actions. And before being released from prison, they were flogged. That is, they were stripped down to their underwear, tied to a post, had their hands held high, and a Roman soldier took a whip. Right? You remember I described that about the crucifixion of Christ? Took a whip with uh, various stones or maybe pointy bones, you know, tied into them at intervals, and whipped the apostles. Blood streaming from the back, great pain, probably not life-threatening. But great agony, bleeding. They put on their shirt and it sticks to their shirt. Probably great. You know how they responded to that? Acts chapter 5, verse 41. They went on their way rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for His name. You say, ah, Steve, but, but their tribulations and their difficulties and their distresses are different because these were the apostles. They'd seen the risen Christ. They'd talked with Jesus. Well, have you considered the early Christians to whom the epistle of Hebrews was written? Listen to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 32 through 34. The writer says this, But remember the former days, when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. These are just run-of-the-mill Joe Christian. And um, we don't know what their sufferings entail. We know that there was some public shame of some. Others kind of shared vicariously in that shame as they identified with the name of Christ. We know that property had been taken away from them without reason. Could you imagine a moving van coming up to your house and saying, knock, 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 excuse me, sir. Um, We have a warrant to take away your property. Why? Well, you're a Christian. Move out of the house, put your property in the moving van, take it away. And uh, would that be a tribulation? Would that be suffering? Is that greater than what you're going through? All your stuff gone? How did the early Christians deal with it? They accepted it joyfully. Joyfully accepted the seizure of your property. Now, you may well come up with some other excuses for not being joyful in your trials. Listen, but please realize, when trials and difficulties and sufferings come upon your life, you have a choice. You have a choice in how you're going to respond to them. You can respond in joy, or you can respond in sorrow and self-pity. I mean, those are the two ways that people often respond. You can embrace the suffering as good for you, or you can complain about your difficulties 
and do anything you can to make them known to everybody and do anything you can to escape from them. You can either be strengthened in your faith through your trials and sufferings or you can be hardened in your heart, doubting even the goodness of God. And so I ask you, when trials and sufferings and difficulties come in your life, how do you respond? They will make you better or they will make you bitter. It'll be one or the other. And I trust that all of us this morning want to respond rightly to the suffering that comes upon us all. I mean, is there anybody here who says, when James says, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, that you say, no, I don't want that. I want to be sorrowing in my afflictions. Is that I think all of us would say, no, I, I want to have some way to, to be joyful in my afflictions. Well, that's the aim of my message. I want to teach you how to have joy in suffering. How to have joy in suffering? I see three points. First of all, focus on others. Look once again what Paul said. Did I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake? Just think about this a moment. Paul said his sufferings in prison for, was for the sake of those in Colossae who... How well did he know these people in Colossae? He didn't even know them. And yet, Paul had a vision in his mind, I'm suffering for Christ for their sake. I mean, how can it be? How can Paul suffer for their benefit? Well, it's not the only time Paul's ever said anything like this. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 6, Paul, writing to those in Corinth, said, If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. What an amazing statement. If we are afflicted, it's for your comfort and salvation. Right? Paul saw his sufferings as it related to the comfort of others. He saw his, his sufferings as it relates, catch this, to the salvation of others. If we are afflicted, it's for your comfort and for your salvation. Paul saw that the eternal salvation of souls of others were connected somehow with the affliction that came upon him, and I believe how it is that he handled it rightly. Well, how can the suffering of one be connected with the salvation of another? I think it's simple in the context of 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Listen, I'll just expand out from verse 6 that I read earlier. I'm going to read verse 5 and 6. We'll catch the context before, catch the context afterwards, see what he's saying. He says, Just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is is abundant through Christ. For if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Or if we are comforted, it's for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. Let me, let me summarize it for you. Here it is. Paul says the sufferings of Christ were abundant in his life. If you know the life of Paul, you know of how abundant they were. He's in prison numerous times, beaten times without numbers, stoned and left for dead, brushed with death on several occasions, spent a, a day and a night in the deep, you know, floating on driftwood out of the sea. But just as his sufferings came in abundance, he said this, so also the comforts of Christ came in abundance to me. Right? Where sin abound, their grace superabounded. Right? When afflictions increased, Paul said, Comforts of Christ increased. That's what he said. <clears throat> and when God's people suffer, 
God gives the strength. When God's people suffer like this, He gives them the strength to help them. If they suffer like this, He gives them more comfort. If they suffer like this, He gives them more and more comfort. I mean, that's just a fact. It's true in the life of Paul. It's true in the life of all of God's saints. I mean, think about when Paul was suffering greatly. He had a thorn in his flesh. Whether it was sickness or a person, we don't know. But all we know is it was bad enough for Paul to plead with the Lord, Lord, please remove this thorn of flesh from me. And God said, Nope. Please, Lord, remove this thorn of the flesh from me. It's hurting me. And I'm sure he came up with all these justifications about why it should get out of there. Well, God said what? Nope. A third time Paul pleaded, and I would get bet from what we know of Paul's prayers. He was pleading passionately and God refused a third time. And he said this, My grace is sufficient for you for power is perfected in weakness. I'm suffering this thorn in the flesh. God says, My grace is sufficient for you. In fact, Paul, when you are weak, that's when I'm going to fill you up and strengthen you. So the comfort you receive from your sufferings, comfort you receive from God, will be sufficient to meet with all your, your stresses and sufferings that you endure. And when being strengthened to endure your sufferings, others will see you being strengthened to endure those sufferings and will be encouraged also then to suffer other things as well. Does that make sense? So in other words, when Paul's suffering and he's enduring it joyfully, the Colossian people will hear about it and they'll be strengthened in what's taking place in Paul. And said, if God can strengthen Paul, He can strengthen me. I know I can go through that. And if God can give Paul such joy, I know that God can give me such joy. A great illustration comes from Philippians chapter 1, written at the same time. He's in prison. Paul says this, I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that by my imprisonment, the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. And that most of the brethren, trusting the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the Word of God without fear. Since this is happening at the same time Paul's writing Colossians, I think this is what Paul's referring to. In fact, it's interesting. His imprisonment caused the church to grow and prosper. First of all, it gave him witnessing opportunities there within the Praetorium Guard. Okay, Direct application to you. I'll mend you at work. Some difficult things come on you. You've got an unsaved mission field right there. Difficult things come upon you. When you respond rightly, the gospel can be made known right there throughout your work. He said it's being made known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard. <laughs> it's also being known around. People hearing, hey, the Apostle Paul is in prison. What's he in prison for preaching the gospel? Just for preaching? He's speaking. He's in the prison. And it kind of gets talked around. And then other people said, Paul's in prison and God's strengthening him and he's joyful in that. Boy, I certainly can go out and preach the Word of God boldly. And so Paul saw how God was using His suffering in the lives of others to help them in that difficulty. And in this, He could rejoice and rejoice He did. You know, I, I see this type of thing taking place in my life. For the most part, as a pastor, I feel like, I feel like I've been on the receiving end of the majority of these blessings. I mean, I've counseled with some people in some very difficult circumstances, Childhood problems they've had, marital problems, financial difficulties. And you know what? When people respond in faith and when people have been comforted by the Lord in their afflictions and stood firm in the faith, you know what the result of that is to me as a pastor? Whoa! Look at God working in that person. 
And I know if God can work in that person, that, boy, He can work in me as well. And I've been encouraged and I've been strengthened as people have responded. I've come to understand the same God who strengthens them will be able to strengthen me the day when my afflictions come. And thus, my heart has been strengthened to endure until the end. Right? When I know that we ultimately saved from this body of sin and stand completely holy before Christ. And I know that as you all have rubbed shoulders right, with people in this church or outside of this church or other Christians you know that, that are going through difficulties and we see them stand firm, you're like, wow, look at how God works. And you can be joyful with that. In fact, I remember one occasion that we had a flock, <clears throat> a flock gathering and uh, we had an opportunity to listen to uh, one of the people in attendance. And uh, this person was just sharing some incredible difficulties in life. And, and if you were there at that flock, you know what I'm talking about because it made a huge impact. And I remember listening to this person talk. And I'm telling you, I was blown away at this person's perspective of life and difficulties and how just trusting the Lord in some incredibly difficult ways. And, and we as a flock, as we heard of that difficulty, we're able then to come around this person. And I think all of us probably prayed. We probably prayed for 20 minutes, half an hour for the circumstance. And this person was standing firm. We're sharing with one another some difficulties. And I will tell you that it had a tremendously strengthening effect upon my life and I'm sure upon the lives of other people who are there. Because there's a connection that when you're suffering and you're joyful through it, it's going to have its effect upon other people. I've seen that in others. And I know as a pastor of the church, I mean, that is the primary context here. Is it works the other way around as well. As various trials and difficulties come upon my life, the Lord has designed them so that you, in seeing me suffer and endure them, will be strengthened by them. That's what Paul is saying. He's saying, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And I just tell you, church family, that you need to know that you're going to be on one side or the other of this issue all the time. You are either going to be going through some sufferings and tribulations and trials and difficulties, or you're going to be watching somebody go through sufferings and trials and difficulties and afflictions. And if you're going through it, realize it's going to have an effect upon other people. And that will help give you joy by knowing this. The Lord works through you to be strengthened by His power of His grace. You are going to be such an encouragement to other people. So you're either going to be suffering or you're going to be watching others. So when you encounter sufferings in this life, I, I encourage you to suffer with others in mind as Paul did. And it will help you have joy in your suffering. Second way to have joy in suffering is understand suffering. Understand it. Now Paul says this, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I do my share on behalf of His body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now, look here at what Christ is saying about, Paul is saying about his sufferings. He says his sufferings were filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Something is lacking in Christ's afflictions. That's what he's saying. Now, were the sufferings of Christ insufficient? I say absolutely not. I mean, the main point of what Paul is saying Right from verses 15 through verses 23 is how entirely sufficient Christ was for salvation. It talked about the person and work of Christ. It talked about the character of Christ. How He is the image of the invisible God. 
how He is the form of the Father, how He is the creator of the world, how He is the purpose of the world, how He is the sustainer of the world, how He is the firstborn from the dead, how He is the head of the church, how He supreme He is. And with such a supreme one, His work likewise also was just as supreme and just as sufficient. There's absolutely nothing deficient in the work of Christ upon the cross. He completely accomplished our redemption. In fact, we're justified before God on the basis of faith alone through His atoning work. That was what Paul is saying. So even in the context of what Paul is saying, he can't be saying here that all oh, Christ's work isn't sufficient. But he did say something is lacking, though. So say, what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? Well, before I tell you what I believe, just notice here of how there's a connection. It has something to do with the church. Because Paul closely links his sufferings with the church. He says his sufferings in his flesh were on behalf of His body, the body of Christ, which is the church. So, so there's somehow there's a connection between Paul's sufferings and the church, which is the body of Christ. And when Paul suffered, he did so as a member of the church. And the church is part of the body of Christ. And we know that when the church suffers, Christ suffers, right? Uh, remember the road to Damascus? Paul was on his way. First group Christians, he's struck by a blind light. Soon afterwards, this voice came from heaven saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting the church? Is that what it said? What did he say? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? What do you mean? I don't even know who you are, Lord. Who are you? He says, I'm Jesus. Paul was en route to persecute the people who believed in Jesus, who made up the church. He's about persecuting the church. But persecuting the church is to persecute Jesus because, and we'll see this a little bit more, the church's body. You persecute the body, you hurt the head. So what's lacking in Christ's afflictions? Here's what I believe it is. Christ's afflictions aren't yet finished. He has more to endure. Now to be sure, His earthly sufferings are finished. Okay, Upon the cross, Jesus said, It is finished. That's to say, His atoning work was finished. With His crucifixion, resurrection, ascension to heaven, His earthly sufferings were finished. But His afflictions weren't over. As the church's body is afflicted with various trials and suffering and pain now, Jesus still experiences the pain in heaven. That's what this verse is saying. In fact, right? 1 Corinthians 12, 26. We know this. If one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Since Christ is the head of the church, He joins both in the sufferings of the church as well as in the joys of the church. We know about the joys of heaven, right? Luke chapter 15, when one sinner repents, what is there? There's joy in heaven. And there is gladness in the disposition in the heart of God, right? Now, what about the flip side of the coin? Because the flip side of the coin is what Colossians 1.24 is talking about. He says that just as there is joy in heaven when things go well, sinners repent, there also is distress and pain in heaven when things upon the church don't go well and there is suffering and oppression upon them. There is suffering in heaven when the body of Christ suffers on earth. Now, you, you can deduce this from other Scripture passages as well. I mean, think with me about the role of Jesus as high priest. We know the book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus Christ is at the right hand of God, constantly praying for us as the great and only high priest that we will ever need. 
Here's a high priest always praying for us. Why is he praying for us? Because things are difficult. And he knows things are difficult and he feels the pain and he is praying on our behalf to God the Father. Just the fact that we have a great high priest demonstrates that things are not going well in the church always. Where's body? He feels the pain and his afflictions aren't yet finished. And in Paul's earthly suffering, he was filling up the afflictions of Christ. And Paul knew that he was playing his part to bring the earthly afflictions of the church, which are affecting his body, to an end. I mean, it's almost as if Christ had a heavenly cup of sufferings to endure. And every time we suffer for Christ's sake, it fills up a little bit more, and a little bit more, and a little bit more, and a little bit more. In fact, Jesus used this terminology in Matthew 23, verse 32. He told the Pharisees that in their sin, they're filling up the measure of the guilt of their sins. Filling something up. They're filling it up. Filling up the measure of their guilt. Paul used the imagery in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. He spoke of the Jews who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove out Paul from Thessalonica. He said that they always fill up the measure of their sins. I don't think there's a literal cup in heaven. But I think they're talking about the same thing. They're talking about the same cup. right? The sins of hostility to Christ upon earth were bad enough, but now people are sinning against His representative upon earth and that is continuing to fill up the wrath which will someday be poured out upon all of them in judgment. I know Magic Waters just opened up recently. And I know that some of you went there recently and uh, particularly your kids. I don't know where it is, but there is this, this big cup, thousand gallons, that, that's filled with a little trickle of water, I think, in about every, I don't know, 20 minutes or so. What happens? That big butt of water, what happens? Tips over. And, and did any of your kids who went there recently stand underneath it? Yeah, you did. And did you get drenched? Is it every 20 minutes, 15 minutes, 10 minutes? How long? I'm close enough, I guess. That's the picture. Is that the sins of people are pouring wrath and wrath and wrath and wrath. And someday the wrath is going to pour out upon them all in judgment. Now, I know some of this persecution. I remember before I was a pastor, I worked in the computer world in corporate America. And over a period of time, you know, as Christians ought to be light, I just had opportunities just to talk about my life and Christ and the church and my love for Him. And uh, you know what? It wasn't always received very well by my coworkers. And uh, in fact, I remember there was a point in time where my coworkers were ridiculing me for my faith and trust in Christ. I felt a bit like Paul. So, Paul was ridiculed in this way. I was ridiculed just a little bit. But it did get so bad that my boss, who's not a Christian, unbeknownst to me, had a talk with my fellow co-workers and he said, guys, we've had enough. We're not going to hear any more of that mocking religious talk against Steve. So I know that there was some level of persecuting for Christ. It was certainly small and not like Paul. But I do know that if they mocked me, they weren't mocking me. Who are they mocking? They're mocking Christ. And if they would afflict me, they weren't afflicting me. They were afflicting my Lord. And I know that they were filling up the cup of afflictions which someday would pour upon them. It's not such a pleasant thing to ponder. And, and, you know, it's not that I want that. I mean, I pleaded with them that they'd repent, turn from their sins and trust Christ. But as they continue to rebel against Him, they're pouring up that wrath there. This is the picture 
of what will help give you joy in suffering for Christ. If you realize that your suffering has a purpose in the plan of God, your suffering is so that their anger to you would actually be anger to Christ and that God would vindicate Himself even more fully on that day of judgment. And I say the path to victory in the church is not the way of the world. And the world gets stomped upon what they do. They, they stand up, right? And they, they say, no, this is wrong, right? But how did Jesus come? He came in weakness and in humility and in suffering. You remember when he stood before Pilate? He said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. In other words, Jesus is saying, I don't fight with swords. I don't fight with body armor. My fight is a different way. My fight is the fight of humility and suffering. This is illustrated recently in a, in a great way. Perhaps you remember a few months ago when a, a Danish newspaper published cartoons that depicted Muhammad. I, I forget exactly how it was depicted. you guys remember that? And, and what happened when Muhammad was being depicted in cartoons? The Muslim people hated it. And they strove up and, and even people were killed in Afghanistan because of what was done. Danish, where is that? Dutch? Where is that? Denmark. Denmark. Because what happened in Denmark you know, it has implications. And around the world there were demonstrations because in their religion, it's a religion of honor. And you've got to protect Muhammad because he's you know, keep him up high. And certainly we believe that about Christ. But there is a subtle difference. John Piper, I'm going to read extensively from an article that he wrote about the differences between Islam and Christianity. It's very insightful. Just to talk about sufferings and give you a perspective. He said this, what we saw this past week in the Islamic demonstration over the Danish cartoons of Muhammad was another vivid depiction of the difference between Muhammad and Christ and what it means to follow each. Not all Muslims approve the violence, but a deep lesson remains. The work of Muhammad is based on being honored and the work of Christ is based on being insulted. And this produces two very different reactions to mockery. If Christ had not been insulted, there would be no salvation. This was his saving work, to be insulted and die to rescue sinners from the wrath of God. Already in the Psalms, the path of mockery was promised. Psalm 22, verse 7. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. Isaiah 53, verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men as one from whom men hide their faces and we esteemed him not. When it actually happened, it was worse than expected. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit upon him. His response to all this was patient endurance. This was the work he came to do, like a lamb that's led to slaughter and like a sheep that's silent before his shears, so he did not open his mouth. But this was not true of Muhammad. And Muslims do not believe it's true of Jesus. Most Muslims have been taught that Jesus was not crucified. One Sunni Muslim writes, Muslims believe that Allah saved the Messiah from the ignominy, 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 bad stuff, of crucifixion. Another adds, we honor Jesus more than you Christians do. We refuse to believe that God would permit Him to suffer death on the cross. An essential Muslim impulse is to avoid the disgrace of the cross. That's the most basic difference between Christ and Muhammad and between a Muslim and a follower of Christ. For Christ, 
enduring the mockery of the cross was the essence of his mission. And for a true follower of Christ, enduring suffering patiently for the glory of Christ is the essence of obedience. Matthew 5.11 Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. During his life on earth, Jesus was called a bastard, a drunkard, a blasphemer, a devil. And he promised his followers the same. Matthew 10, verse 25, If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? The caricature and mockery of Christ has continued to this day. Martin Scorsese portrayed Jesus in The Last Temptation of Christ as racked with doubt and beset with sexual lust. Andre Serrano was funded by the National Endowment of the Arts to portray Jesus on a cross sunk in a bottle of urine. The Da Vinci Code portrays Jesus as a mere mortal who married and fathered children. And now he gets to his last paragraph. He says, How should the followers of Christ respond right, when our God is mocked? On the one hand, we are grieved and angered. But on the other hand, we identify with Christ and embrace His suffering and rejoice in our afflictions and say with the Apostle Paul that vengeance belongs to the Lord. Let us love our enemies and win them with the gospel. If Christ did His work by being insulted, we must do ours likewise. And I hope that helps to give you a perspective of suffering for Christ and what that means. Because see, we follow a suffering Savior, which means that we will suffer as well. And I simply say, let's embrace our suffering with joy as Jesus did when He willingly took upon Him the cross. Right? That verse in Hebrews chapter 12, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame. Let's embrace our suffering with joy as Paul did here in Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. I think Paul embraced it because he understood suffering. He understood the bigger picture. Well, here's my last point. How can we have joy in suffering? Focus on others, understand suffering, and this may be the foundation of it all. Trust God. This will be a bit briefer. And I, I, I don't get this from verse 24. I get it from the end of verse 23 and the beginning of, of verse 25. Look what he says right there at the end of verse 23. It kind of leads them in to talk about the ministry and the ministerial sufferings he's enduring. He says, of which I, Paul, was made a minister. And at the, end of verse, at the beginning of verse 25, he says, of this church... I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit. In verse 23, he's made a minister of the gospel. In verse 25, he's made a minister of the church. And I think this is why I say trust God is because Paul saw the sovereign hand of God in everything that took place in his life. He was made a minister of Christ. Paul didn't sign up for the ministry. He didn't attend seminary because he wanted to be a pastor. In fact, where the truth no, he was known, he was, he was basically running away from the Lord, wasn't he? He was hating the Lord. He was persecuting the Lord because he was persecuting the church. And yet, God chose him to be in the ministry. Struck him blind, said, go see Ananias. And when he went to see Ananias, Ananias basically told him the message that Jesus told Ananias. Jesus said to Ananias, I will show Paul how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Paul knew right from the start of being a minister that that it wasn't any part of Paul. It was God doing it. 
And even from the start, he said, Paul, you are going to suffer and you're going to suffer a lot for my name's sake. And so that's why I think that when you understand the ministry of Paul, you, you see and know that all the suffering that came his way, he knew that all of that came from a sovereign hand of God because God says, I'm going to show you how much you're going to suffer. So every time he was suffering, every time he was shipwrecked, I think Paul's made in the back of his mind, oh, God, I didn't know that shipwreck was part of the suffering, but here is shipwreck's part of my suffering. You know? And we were stoned, you know. Paul was maybe thinking, Jesus, you told me that I was going to suffer much for your name, and here I am being stoned. I didn't know that was what it was. But he said, I'm going to show you how much you must suffer. But he knew that all of this was under the sovereign hand of God. And I think this is the foundational truth that kept him going. Because he knew that God had called him to the ministry. He knew that God had called him to suffering. He knew that God's hand was upon him in his imprisonment. And he knew that God could free him from the jail. He knew the suffering came upon him with divine purpose. Earlier I read from 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 6. I want you to think about it again now with divine purpose in mind. He said this, If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. I believe there's divine intentionality in this passage. That God brings affliction to His servants so that they might comfort and secure other Christians in their faith. It's nothing less than the sovereign hand of God that upholds and strengthens in difficulties. He, he, he causes some to suffer. He strengthens them in that suffering because He knows in seeing that suffering that they're going to be encouraged by it. And I think that's sovereign design. So when suffering comes in your life, know that God's got His hand upon that. In our Bible reading, we've been reading through Job, if you've been keeping along. I mean, is Job not a book about the sovereign hand of God in suffering? You know, this whole book goes back and forth. Why are you suffering? Why are you suffering? Why are you suffering? But you know, in the beginning, that God even instigated it. I mean, God was the first one who said to Satan, Hey, Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Almost saying like, huh? He's my prize. You want to try to tempt him? So he's like, oh, yeah, you know, and then he started tempting him. It was God's plan at the beginning. It was God's plan at the end that just says, I am the Lord. I do as I please. That was the truth that finally let Job free from his sufferings to say, God, I know that you are sovereign and basically you do all things. That was his comfort. And that, I believe, is the comfort of Paul. That will be your comfort in the day of trial and suffering and tribulation and affliction. That God is in control of the suffering and He has a purpose for it. Right? We quote Romans 8.28 so often, someday it's going to be worn out. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and who are called according to His purpose. You've got to grasp that truth as central and essential if you would ever have joy in suffering. Right? And think about Romans 8.28. Think about the intentionality of God in those things. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God according to His purposes. God causes all things in our life, good and bad. If you doubt that, Isaiah 45, verses 6 and 7 says, I'm the Lord and there is no other, the one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. God does it for a purpose. He does it for good to those who love God. It may not seem good at the moment. In fact, I guarantee it won't seem good at the moment. It's only when you see the divine purpose of God and trust Him that you'll say, okay, this is good. And it may not seem good for years. And it may not seem good 
even until eternity. But I guarantee if you love God, if you're called according to His purpose, all things in your life will work together for good. And that doesn't just include good things. That's all things. That is good and bad. There will be no standing before the throne of God someday saying, well, God, I guess that didn't work out so well, did it? There's not going to be any of that. God sovereignly works all things after the counsel of His will for our good and for His glory. And I think that's right where Paul found his joy, that God made him a minister. God told him that he was going to suffer, and so any sufferings that he came were fine. You think about when Paul told these believers, right, in the churches, through many tribulations we'll enter the kingdom of God. When the tribulations come, we're like, oh, that's what Paul said to us. Yep, here we go. This is coming. That's what we need to do to enter the kingdom of God. So oftentimes the false gospel is presented today and suffering is not in there. And then when the suffering comes, people are like, oh, I didn't sign up for this. I signed up for the abundant life. But God says, no, you just trust me in all things and it will be difficult. But in the end, it's going to be good. Are you going to trust God? Our hymnology is so good at this point. I've picked out several hymns. I do want to close our service in singing just as an affirmation of our hearts in light of suffering. Think, think about this one. Day by day, I'll just, I'll just read them and then we'll sing them. Day by day, and with each passing moment, strength I find to meet my trials here, trusting in my Father's wise bestowment. I have no cause for worry or for fear. He whose heart is kind beyond all measure gives unto each day what he deems best. Lovingly, it's part of pain and pleasure, mingling toil with peace and rest. He says, every day, I know that the trials that come, I know that I'm trusting in my Father's wise bestowment because He's sovereign over the situation. And I know that I don't have any need to fear or be worried or be dismayed because He's going to encourage me and strengthen me because His height, his heart is kind beyond all measure and He's going to do what He deems best and I'm going to have pain and pleasure in this life and I'm going to take them joyfully as I trust my God. Is that not the message of what Paul is saying here? How about how firm a foundation? When through fiery trials thy pathways shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee. I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. The soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. Just think through what he's saying there. God is speaking. And he's saying that, listen, when fiery trials are coming, my grace all sufficient will be thy supply. And my aim and my purpose and my direction in life is this. Your dross, I want to consume it. Take it away. Get rid of the dross. And thy gold that I have, I want to refine it and make it pure and make it right. The fiery, it's not going to hurt you. It's going to refine you. And that soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose, that the soul that's resting and trusting on Christ, God says, I'm not going to desert him to his foes. Though all hell should endeavor to shake that. Right, ladies? 
I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor power nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of Christ. Nothing in this entire created world will be able to separate us from the love of Christ. Even if all hell should endeavor to shake your soul, God says this, I'm never going to forsake you because you've leaned your soul upon Jesus and the one who trusts Jesus Trust in God and I'm going to protect you. Even though things are hard and things look very difficult. These hymns, listen, are anchors to our souls in the sovereign goodness of God to carry us through the trials that we face. And I simply say this, if this is the case, how could we not have joy in suffering? If it comes with divine decree, comes upon our life, in sovereign control of God, it's not going to kill you in the end. But it's to take the dross away, and it's to refine the gold, and it's for good. Why would we not rejoice? We don't rejoice because we're focusing on ourselves rather than others. We don't rejoice because we don't understand suffering. But suffering has a, a sovereign purpose to it, and we don't trust God. We're trusting in something else rather than trusting God. And so I, I simply say this, Rockefeller Bible Church people, maybe you're going through a trial right now. Maybe you're suffering for some reason. And these things ought to help you. Maybe things are running smooth for you. These things ought to prepare you for that day. Because that day's coming. I know it's coming. And when that day comes, I plead you remember this. Focus on others, right? Understand what suffering's about and really then trust God things. Because that's the solution to have joy in suffering. Let's pray and then we'll sing these great hymns of the faith as we close our service. Let's pray. God, how contrary to our ways these things are. God, how we focus on ourselves when things get hard. Woe is me. I'm a victim. How little we understand suffering. God, perhaps even the things that I spoke here this morning are new to some people. Eyes being opened in light of the the divine, sovereign power over suffering that comes with a purpose. God, how slow we are to to trust You. I know even for myself how how difficult it is when coming upon trials and difficulties to... To say, God, I trust you in this, that it's for good. So, God, I would pray that at Rock Valley Bible Church that we might be like the Apostle Paul and have great joy in suffering, that it might encourage each one of us as we see others having joy in suffering. That it might also be a testimony to the world of how we are like our Savior who left us an example that we should follow in His steps. His example was suffering, and so we need to example that and model that for others as we fill up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. And I pray finally, God, that we would find in You a great bastion for our souls. Right? That You would be the ballast of our ship that goes through life. That You would be the foundation that holds steady and firm is our trust in You. God, that we would be victorious over these things. God, ultimately to give You glory, to lay our crown at Jesus' feet and worship Him for eternity because of the grace that was shown within us. God, because we long to magnify You. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt His name together was the cry of the psalmist. 
And so, Lord, we do cry that again today. God, may you be magnified and glorified in us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.